but I did my, my master's thesis on a, uh, I did an evaluation of some alternative energy approaches that the government of Jamaica was undertaking. You're listening to Vitamin PhD, a podcast from Boston University delivering career narratives and know-hows to supplement your doctoral studies. Welcome to Season 8 of the Vitamin PhD podcast, where we're exploring management and leadership in conversation with a wide array of guests with academic and professional experience across diverse fields. I'm Allie, a doctoral candidate in American Studies working in the environmental humanities. And I'm Emma, a PhD candidate in biomedical engineering working on non-invasive neuromodulation. I'm also a leadership member of Nucleate Boston, a student-run organization that facilitates the formation of life science companies through our educational programs. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Josh Finkelstein, Executive Director of Boston University's Biological Design Center and a former editor of the journal Nature. Thank you so much, Josh, for being with us today and agreeing to talk to us. We are super excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you for the invitation to be here. I'm, I'm really excited to talk uh, with you today. To start, would you just mind telling us a little bit about your educational and career path? So I came to Boston uh, in 1998, uh, so a long time ago. Um, I started a PhD at the Harvard Chemistry and Chemical Biology Department. Um, at the time, uh, it was very normal to finish your undergrad and immediately go into graduate school. There are definitely exceptions, um, but most of my friends who were seniors in college went on immediately to either medical school or graduate school. Um, some At the time, it was actually quite common to go straight into a PhD program. I had had research experience as an undergrad, but obviously um, kind of the real world research life is very different. You're kind of in the lab for very long hours. Um, you're investigating very, very focused pieces of information in the sciences, especially in engineering. And um, what I found is that I, I was drawn to things like our weekly journal club, where we would take a step back and look at some other field and um, find some exciting paper of the week. Every once a year, we would each give kind of a general literature seminar that was not on our own science. It was on something else we found interesting. And you'd go and research for a week or so present for 45, 50 minutes about something very, very different. And of course, it being grad school, you spend long hours uh, in the lab with people. And I found myself more interested in talking with my peers um, about what it would mean if everything worked out okay in their project. So not the day-to-day mundane, oh, this is my NMR spectra of this intermediate X, Y, and Z. Those things I found very, very uh, uninteresting. I was much more drawn to the bigger question, like if this all worked out, what could we do with this? Um, what would be the next big step? At the time, uh, there were these so-called their alternative careers back then, which is kind of a horrible name because it means that like, it kind of implies that you failed because you didn't go become a professor. But we had people who went off to become patent lawyers, people who went off to join consulting groups, uh, people who went off to end up in venture capital firms. And I had always been interested in communications and kind of how uh, how important it is to take something like um, some really detailed piece of science and try and turn it into something that your grandmother or, or your parents might be able to understand. I really like that it's a very challenging thing to do. And I find it to be a, a really good skill um, to try and say like, okay, I, I can talk with this at the PhD level, but can I talk this, can I, can I get this concept across at the high school level or at the grandparent level 
And so I was trying to figure out what to do. I applied for a few jobs, including there was a position opening up at the journal Nature. Uh, it's a journal based in the United Kingdom. Uh, at the time, there was Nature itself, plus a handful of other journals that were related to Nature. Now there's quite a lot more. Um, but they were looking for someone who was kind of more or less in my field. And I said, this sounds interesting. I don't really know what the job would entail, but based on the description, it sounds like reading papers, talking about science, thinking about big picture stuff, not doing uh, pipetting. You know, fast forward 12 years later, I had been at the journal Nature as an editor and then a senior editor and a team leader. And um, I've been able to, you know, travel the world to conferences, speak with graduate students, postdocs, Nobel laureates. Um, but all in all, it was a really cool experience for me. Um, your day-to-day your -day really involved becoming an expert at what's in front of you. So you hyper-develop your shorter-term memory. You dive into a paper just like you would in a journal club. You learn everything you can possibly imagine you could learn about this topic. Um, and then you kind of put it aside and you move on to the next really exciting topic. And because a journal like Nature covers so many, many subjects, you end up having to become a very, very broadly based scientist or engineer. Uh, I was no longer just an organic and biochemist. Uh, now I had to learn about protein engineering, about synthetic biology. Uh, I had to get familiar with what's going on in the field with cancer therapeutics, which is an area like the chemistry I might have experienced before, but I had no idea any of the biology or any of these drug targets. Um, you end up learning quite a lot um, from your peers uh, because every week you sit in a room and somebody who's talking about a really cool advance in anthropology gets up and explains why this is really interesting. So, so even, the, even though your own uh, desk is very, very broad, you're in a much, much, much broader world. And um, so at the end of that time, uh, so, so, so near, I don't know, probably like let's say year 11 or so when I was there, um, there were still a lot of things I liked about the job, but I started to get interested in kind of moving more back into a, or moving into or back into a more academic environment. And I looked and said, hey, you know, there are some jobs out there that have people who have graduate degrees, have some experience maybe as a communicator or an editor, or they've worked in policy, or they worked in biotech, but they're looking for someone who's kind of an extra pair of hands to kind of keep the ship running. We have a, a center with a, a number of different research supervisors. Um, there are all across the, the arts and humanities and sciences and engineering, there are many, many versions of this where they're looking for someone who had a quote unquote alternative career and now is interested in helping either um, with mentoring and professional development of graduate students, um, with writing of new grants, with administrating grants in some capacity. Um, and I was really fortunate to find myself uh, in a fantastic position at Tufts um, with Professor Michael Levin. Uh, it was a newly formed Allen Discovery Center. They had kind of invested a lot of money from this uh, philanthropic organization to come together to work on uh, multidisciplinary research in a very interesting area. It was regenerative medicine, developmental biology, uh, and biomedical engineering. Our job was to basically put together a cohesive team um, kind of almost, so in, in engineers and, and chemists and scientists will talk about bottom up versus top down. This was a mechanism where a large funding agency came in and said, here is a big problem you're going after. It was something Paul Allen was really excited about. He started four of these centers over a couple of years. Here's a decent size, large amount of money. Bring together some of the world experts in this area and develop uh, a better understanding, a multidisciplinary understanding of this particular problem. And that's very different than some other centers like the center I'm currently at, at, at uh, Boston University, the Biological Design Center, which really was formed from the bottom up. Uh, eight months ago, nine months ago, in the middle of a pandemic, I decided, well, actually a year ago, I decided to look for new jobs. And I ended up coming to Boston University in January. 
And um, it's been a really exciting experience since, but that's the very long introductory, how did I get here? I think it's really kind of cool to think that when you're in your 20s or your 30s, you maybe don't see that you're moving through this path uh, through the multiverse, if you will, and there are all these other branches. But when you get a little bit older, you look back and say, hey, that's kind of cool. I didn't do that. And it ended up being the best decision I made to not take that job and to take this job instead. And here's why. And so I think it's kind of cool to, to you know, I think we don't do that a lot. But even just to look back on if you're in your mid-20s, where have I come from? Like, well, you know, what? how did I get into this field? And it turns out, like, for me, I had this totally awesome high school chemistry teacher and this totally terrible high school physics teacher. And I didn't know that engineering existed, but I loved math. How did I end up here? And and um, and this helps, I think, with the rest of your life, too. Like, what what do I like? What do I dislike? What are my... What are my motivations? There are all these tools now, um, like you know, these um, you can develop an IDP or you can do all these kinds of um, assessments to figure out like what kind of person am I? Um, what motivates me? I didn't have the words to describe it back in 1998 or 2000 or 2005, but I think now it's much more common to say, hold on a second. Yes, you're in a degree, uh, you're, you're getting a degree in a really important field in a fantastic university, but like. What, what gets you up in the morning? What, what are you going to do next? I think it's really easy to get caught up and say, oh, if I'm not a professor in this field by 35, I'm nothing. That might be true for some people, but it doesn't have to be true for all of us, for sure. We can't all be professors, and many of us shouldn't be professors. And then you kind of look at it and say, what are kinds of things that I can do? What training have I developed during my graduate degree that I can then use to tackle some really interesting problem elsewhere? I love this, Josh, the emphasis on knowing yourself. Um, I wonder if you'd just say briefly what an IDP stands for, because you've, you've touched on some of the assessments and skills that graduate students can be considering. So just uh, to clarify, an IDP is defined as an individual development plan. And it's you can have different versions of them. You can have one related to kind of your more academic type uh, ambitions, one more directed towards your kind of career type ambitions. But it's a tool that kind of helps you get to know what journey you're on, where you're trying to get to, and and why you kind of want to do that. That sounds like a really fun um, activity for anyone listening and informative activity. So would you quickly clarify what your current role is in BU's Biological Design Center and um, further maybe touch on some of the goals of the BDC um, like you did for the Allen Institute? Sure, absolutely. Um, so uh, the Biological Design Center has been actually, it's existed at BU for um, about five years, and it's growing in both its scope. Uh, um, there's, a, there's a relatively new building that, that is up on um, uh, the Kilshawn Center, and, and it's a wonderful building. There's a lot of new faculty um, that have joined in the past few years. Um, and, and basically it is now, I want to say it's either 15 or maybe 16 different faculty and their researchers Coming from a variety of departments, for example, if I'm building engineered tissue of some sort, what if I want to like be able to replace uh, damaged muscle and, and bone? How am I going to build these really complex three-dimensional biological materials? And um, yeah, so in this group, so there's there's support from Boston University that's kind of you know bringing these people together, but also everyone has their own grants. So kind of the idea of how do we um, have groups come together, groups that maybe use different words to describe similar phenomena, um, to come together, find a common language, and then go after a really large uh, problem in the sciences and engineering. But one of the things that drew me to Boston University is that I would say that um, 
in my opinion, a really healthy center has several pillars it kind of rests on. You have really fantastic world-class research that's clearly BU has that. We have excellent uh, scientists, we have excellent engineers. Um, I love the idea of a really strong mentorship and training program. So at the moment there is, uh, we have a T32 grant, which is a grant from the NIH. It's one of the world's first, I think it's the, the first and possibly still only grant on synthetic biology and biotechnology. And that supports graduate training in this area, including an internship uh, during non-pandemic times, especially, but, but going forward, definitely. We're also looking into exploring other kinds of grants that can do training and mentoring. Um, I, there's also a lot of really fantastic student groups, some that, for example, work on the idea like industry engagement, some that work in the innovation and entrepreneurial space, some that work in communications, and we're trying to support as many of these as possible. Um, and then, you know, my own kind of personal favorite, and we're doing some of this right now, is there's um, obviously a lot of opportunity for STEM education and outreach. Um, I have two younger children uh, in the Cambridge public school systems. So, um, for example, I have two children in uh, Cambridge public uh, schools. And um, I, before COVID and hopefully in the near future, I ran a before school STEM club aimed at um, younger kids, so second to fifth graders. And um, we saw a lot of really interesting things, but one thing you see even at a Cambridge public school, which is a relatively diverse group of um, students, the diversity of the school and the diversity of the STEM club wasn't really fully matched. There was some diversity in the STEM club and, and, and that was great, but it wasn't fully matched and there's like, so many reasons why. And I think that um, until I, I kind of was a, a, a parent seeing this kind of unroll in real time, it was all very abstract to me, this idea that like, yes, there's a leaky pipeline. Yes, there's issues with diversity and inclusion in STEM fields, even at an early age. And you hear this again and again, but to actually like literally see it like, this is what I see on the playground. This is what's going on in the STEM club. And then you kind of unpack and unravel it and you're like, wait a minute. So we're holding the STEM club before school. Sometimes the buses come at after the STEM club starts and some kids get breakfast before school and boom, boom, boom. And you line up all the dominoes. You're like, holy crap, structural racism. And you didn't even know you were going down that road. I kind of was like, you know, we are, we have so many places we can look at getting, uh, like working on DEIJ issues. For example, recently, um, Girls Who Code expanded their program. So it was not solely middle school and they extended it to younger grades. I think acknowledging that this is like, what we really need is like an 18 year investment from starting in kindergarten for everyone. And, and that's something that's probably not gonna happen in this particular political climate right now, but it gets to the other piece that really I'm very interested in, especially with the BDC is this idea of, can we build a really diverse, really inclusive environment at the Biological Design Center? Do we wanna, for example, pursue um, you know, an, an REU, which is specifically a way of bringing students. Um, so it's a research, uh, research experience for undergraduates. It's a way of bringing students who maybe don't have an ability to have research at their school to Boston University to then um, have this really fantastic experience and training. We have some of these on campus. Chemistry has a very, very well-loved one that um, hopefully will continue for many years to come. I believe biology has one as well. Um, that might be something that we move towards in the future. You can learn more about inclusive teaching methods in this field. Obviously, there was um, 21 days of anti-racism from the summer, and they, some of that talked about issues that touch all fields, but, but we can learn lessons from that for, um, for our own field. 
um, I know the subject that we're kind of going to be talking about today to some degree is innovation and entrepreneurship. And um, it, it, it's to completely surprises me that in 2021, you can still click on an innovation panel and every single person is a white male, white older male usually. You can click on the board of directors for any one of a zillion companies that are in the Boston area and their, their, um, their representation of non-white males tends to be, for example, the legal uh, team or tends to be the human resources officer. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. We have tons of highly capable people who could be a CEO, a CSO, there are things that are being done to address some of this. Mass bio is leading a big charge to look at some of this, but it's kind of astonishing me that that we're still at this point. We, And I'll, a very, very brief side note, I talked to my almost 14 year old and she says, why aren't things getting better faster? And, and that's a really important thing to think about. And in some cases, okay, if we talk from a government standpoint, it was kind of designed to move slowly maybe to make sure that they didn't have too many errors along the way, but it also means you can't make fast progress necessarily. And in some areas we are making good progress, but it's a really interesting question. Like what can I do as a mid-career uh, white man to make the environment that I'm working in much more um, inclusive, much more diverse? What can I do? One of the things I think we're going to do going forward at the Biological Design Center is try to engage more graduate students in some sort of leadership role. I don't know what that would necessarily be called. Some places call them like student councils or advisory groups. But really, um, the last thing that the world needs is me trying to make this decision all on my own and deciding for the BDC, this is what we're going to do, because that's exactly the wrong decision. The right decision has to come from people who say, you know what, I don't feel included um, for these reasons. And so I'm really looking forward um, to working on that going forward as well. So, so I want our center to not just be known for its amazing science and engineering, not just be known for its fantastic uh, undergraduate, graduate, postdoctoral fellow research and great job placements, not just for all of the wonderful grants we get both to do exciting science and to train the next generation mentors, but I want people to say, oh yeah, um, you know, BU is such a great place. If you're an engineer and you're from one of these other groups that's traditionally underrepresented, it's a totally awesome place to be. I love this so much. And I just want to say that the um, identifying and exploring the ways that structural racism is operating is not at all contrary, but I think really essential to thinking about some of the barriers and in doing innovative work. So I want to invite you to speak more to that. So if we talk about inter interdisciplinary within sciences, not every science department is the same, right? I mean, certain departments are more represented by certain groups than others. Um, I think certain, um, like for example, um, I went to my undergraduate at McGill University. Um, I was in an environment that was actually fairly, because it was Montreal, possibly because of other things, it was actually a relatively diverse undergraduate group. And I remember, uh, you know, I went to Harvard and I was like, wow, 90% of my incoming class of 45 people are male. But there are certain areas where um, things have moved slower. I think in general, I think the statistics will say that engineering moves a little slower in terms of diversity in a lot of different ways at the at the faculty level. There are some departments that are a little bit um, more diverse than others. The same is true with the sciences. So, for example, if you um, are bringing together scientists and engineers from many, many different groups, um, their their uh, their experience interacting with other people who are not self it differs. You know, if you're in a, in, in some departments, maybe 
95% of your colleagues are male. And so when you bring together a, a group of scientists, you want to make sure all voices are heard. If you want to bring um, together a group of scientists and engineers from different stages in their career, how can you make sure that um, the younger faculty get heard and their ideas are um, supported by people? Sometimes you end up in a meeting where there's four or five faculty and the most senior person just kind of steamrolls everybody. And this is my idea and you're going to get on board or you're not going to get the funding. That's not great. Um, you know, talking about structural issues and the leaky pipeline, I don't know this from personal experience because my older daughter is only in eighth grade, but I believe some of the ways that um, some, some like, I, I they believe there's been research that's shown that like these highly competitive based science festival, first robotics, these kinds of things are are off-putting to many young women. So you might have someone who's an excellent coder, really loves robots, but doesn't really want to enter like kind of more of a bro robotics culture type thing where the only thing that matters is you come in first place. So once again, um, that is an overgeneralization. That's certainly not true across the board. I think it is less true than it was 20 years ago. Certainly somebody said, oh yeah, no, we teach to the average brain, but the irony is that no one has an average brain. There's people with all sorts of different brains. The average brain doesn't exist. We've just averaged all of this together. Then why aren't we teaching like, what are a thousand and one things you could do with this paperclip? Stuff like that, like really open-ended creative questions that might not just, for example, women, uh, but any group who thinks along those lines is automatically kind of excluded because of the way you're doing these questions. I hate these multiple choice tests. Um, I would much rather you hand me uh, a topic and an essay to write, even though I'm a, a scientist, I, you know, I, I'd be like, yeah, I'd happily write to you a thousand words on why I think it's really strange that we teach the plum pudding model when it's um, old. And we should just like, why is, I don't know if AP Bio is still like this, but should AP Bio be exclusively food webs or should we also talk about genetic engineering? There are lots of groups. Um, there's a group uh, called BioBuilder that's actually local. There's um, some people at the BDC who have interacted with um, that group and they are looking at this and they're thinking, how do we get people with a biological background, people with a comp sci background to come together in a way that really looks at the question and says, um, I don't want to do this in a way that excludes someone from feeling comfortable. I don't want to do this in a competition-based environment. I want to do this in a collaboration-based environment. And so I think this is, of course, a little bit off the original question, but when we're talking about bringing groups together, anything we can do to make people feel like their question is a, is a, is a good question to ask or their suggestion is valued in some way. I think one of the big challenges for any of these things, and it could be group meeting for a team. So I love this idea that, um, you know, we can come together, we can learn from each other, we can learn each other's strengths. Um, no one is a 10 out of 10 on everything, but you may have a team where you've got a 10 out of 10 in an area where none of you are good at that. Why would you not want this person to, to speak up and say, hey, I'm actually really, I am so good at understanding how to craft compelling one page narratives. You should put me in charge of getting this in front of the board of directors or getting this in front of our funders. The most important part of life is figuring out where you belong and where you can do what you're supposed to do. And I'm not talking about as a fatalist, like, you know, not like there's only one path you can travel, but, but there, there are, there are things that you are better at and that you also enjoy and you should do them. You should do as many of them as you can. It might, uh, be tricky at first, but there are lots and lots of groups. If your passion is like to be the bridge between science and education and government policy, then you should go do that. You should do whatever because we need everyone to do their best. That's really great. So um, I think you outlined some really key tenets in 
leadership that helps produce innovation, such as collaboration, telling someone that their thoughts and ideas have value, and um, really just forming a community. So with those in mind, um, could you touch on some of the challenges and risks involved with pursuing these highly innovative ideas? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think sometimes when we think of innovation, we only think about innovation when we're talking about companies and spin-outs and entrepreneurship. But anyone who is in any graduate degree is innovating right now. They're taking something that isn't really well understood and they're linking, they're making connections that haven't been made before. And this doesn't, it doesn't matter what field you're in. Maybe you're looking at one aspect of art history and you're connecting with something else that's going on in the world at the time. And you see a connection that no one else has seen. That's innovative, right? So, so to do that is hard, right? It's a lot easier to just kind of crank the wheel and do something that's not super duper innovative. Depending on where you are in life, you may have more. I mean, I think a lot of innovation comes from people when they're uh, younger. They're spending a lot more time in the lab or in or in the library. They're talking to a whole bunch of other people. They're synthesizing really big ideas together, and they're also at a time of their life where maybe they're a little more um, like they're more likely to take risks. So that would come into, for example, if you are going to propose a really wild idea, even if you have the best um supporting data that's that's a little riskier right that's not maybe something i would necessarily do uh because i'm i'm more mid-career or something but but if i was going to start a company up would i want to start a startup tomorrow for me that wouldn't be a good match and i know that about myself but for other people depending on you know where they are in life that doesn't necessarily mean younger versus mid-career versus farther career um it just means where you are in life what's your what's your comfort level with innovation i think the in the innovation and the multidisciplinary uh aspects come together because any sort of time where you're pulling threads from different fields, you're more likely to be more innovative. Now, there is a downside. You may also kind of do something that's already really well known in that field. It's really tricky to be an expert in both areas. So that's why collaboration is key. I remember um, I'd be at conferences and people were saying, I'm doing A and B and C. I said, uh, you just described the polymerase chain reaction, which has been around for like 20 years at that point. Um, you weren't innovative, you just kind of reinvented the wheel by accident. You know, another thing is, is that I think it's important to have a lot of confidence in your ideas, especially in academia, but also beyond. Like if you're going to start out a company. So if you came to me and said, I've got an idea, we're going to buy a whole bunch of cars and put them all over the city. And then people are going to like borrow them for an hour and pay $30 and drive it around or whatever. I said, that just sounds like a crazy idea. Why would you do that when you could just ride your bike or walk? Or if you're going to go to the beach, rent a car. I, I'd never... I would have never personally invested in Zipcar, and yet it's doing great. So I'm not the right person to judge whether or not your idea is innovative. There are people out there that are better experts, significantly better than me. But also, if you see something important, maybe you actually do know something that they don't. Maybe they have been out of this subfield for so long. Uh, so having confidence in your idea um, is, is, is extremely important. And then um, being able to go take that risk, being like, I'm going to hear... 10 no's this week. I'm going to hear 50 no's this week, but eventually I'm going to hear a yes. And for me, that is what it really drives me. Just knowing that you're the kind of person that wants to do that, then that's for you. And once again, this comes down to where you are in your own personal journey. You may be really highly innovative, but it just doesn't come together with your own idea, in which case maybe you should go and join someone else's startup team, or maybe you should just join a smaller company that is like looking to expand and you fit what they need. So on the topic of advice, um, 
previously you emailed us some great resources for students at BU to get involved in innovation, entrepreneurship, those areas. Could you mention them a little bit? So there is a group at the Biological Design Center called BDC SPIN, and they're actually students who know, more or less know at an earlier stage, like second, third year graduate school. I'm looking for a a non-professor job in sciences and engineering. And I want to make sure that along the way, um, I develop um, a network, I develop the right tools. I know because some of the tools, some of the things I'm developing here, some of that will become really useful to a company, but other skills I don't have yet. And so um, I've only worked with them a little bit, but they do basically, they bring together mentoring circles. Now there are other resources through um, the uh, PDPA, which is a group at BU. They have mentoring circles. They have other kinds of opportunities. They have lots of workshops, for example, I've never really interviewed before. What do I do? Or I don't know what my, how to make a good resume. And I think a lot of these skills, like the way to make yourself stand out in application is, okay, I'm, I'm hardworking, I'm smart, I've got some good papers, but I've also actually taken this workshop on communications. Um, I also actually have worked in a team building system here for A, B, and C, and I have a good idea of how to work in a bigger team. We all have these skills that we kind of don't realize we have until you talk to somebody else who hasn't gone through such an intense graduate training program. I mean, you all have good time management skills to a degree, some better than others. We all have decent project management skills. Otherwise we wouldn't be able to like get our stuff done. Another area, for example, if you're interested in innovation entrepreneurship. So there was a group um, that was called Mint and they've actually been um, uh, joined a, a larger group called Nucleate Boston. So Nucleate Boston is a group that's been around for a few years. They're graduate, it's a graduate student organization. I love that a lot of these are graduate student run with some support from, from others, but like advisors or maybe a little financial support from an institution. But they are graduate students who are like, we need to learn how to do this. And so we're going to build a, a network. We're going to build a program. And in this case, um, I believe it's students from Harvard, MIT, Boston University, Northeastern, I think maybe Boston College, uh, Tufts, and I think a couple of other schools, and they're growing. And what they want to do is bring together people. So let's say, for example, you're a scientist. They bring together an MD. You talk about some stuff. Then they connect you with somebody who's in, getting an MBA somewhere or getting a law degree. And they kind of build up these, these teams. And they're going to do um, – this is a competition-based system. I believe you all kind of develop an idea, learn how to make a pitch, learn how to analyze your market. And then you kind of go through the whole system of then presenting your idea kind of like to a Shark Tank-like group of real people in the biotech world and get feedback. But there are lots of ways that you can kind of build up your skill set. Um, if you're interested in communications, we have the BDC Comms Lab, which develops their uh, graduate students and postdocs who are really interested in helping their peers. So learning first and then helping their peers second on how to become better communicators. It could be, I don't really know anything about uh, how to make good figures. And they run a workshop on figure making, or I'm having a really hard time with this is my first poster I've ever given at a, at a, at a, at a national symposium. How do I do this? Um, or how do I then, um, you know, how do I write this cover letter? How do I write this proposal for a new grant? Um, these are all things that um, you don't necessarily get explicitly taught. Some supervisors teach you this along the way, but it's not standardized. Um, some of your postdocs or senior graduate students are good resources to go to. I encourage everyone to look around both at BU, but then beyond. What kind of groups can I join? What kind of resources are out here for me to become better at what I do? Should I go to this mass bio symposium that talks about 
how to talk to, uh, what's an elevator pitch? How do I do a one minute version? Um, and now that we're doing more and more in-person uh, um, work, you can theoretically grab the person after their talk and say, hey, I just had a quick question. I didn't feel comfortable saying this in front of everyone, but like, would you be willing to like email me? I, I don't know if I need a mentor or just a few questions asked. I think there are a lot of people out there, especially people who are within their first five to 10 years after their PhD, who aren't necessarily being asked to mentor somebody. And maybe they have more time than the person who's been out of their degree for 30 years or 40 years. Um, and they're going to give you a different perspective than your research supervisor, your faculty supervisor. I think there are a lot of people who like want to give back, you know, um, after, you know, especially people who like were working hundreds of hours a week and now they're working like a more normal job. They're like, hey, you know, I, I do have time on the weekend to talk with somebody about how I ended up in this slightly unusual career. Or I do really want to talk about what medical communications is like at Vertex. It's something I think people would be excited about. Um, there are often career panels where they bring in some of these people. And then you can go up to those people and say, hey, I, I, or I connect with you on LinkedIn afterwards. Hey, I, I really liked your talk. I'm really interested in STEM education, but I don't even know where to go next with this. What, what do you recommend? And I think it's one of those, you know, um, you, 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 they, don't, they can't say yes if you don't ask. It's okay if somebody says no. Once again, it's not a criticism of you. It might just be they are too busy. But if you don't ask, they don't even have the opportunity to decide for themselves if they want to do that. And I think lots of us don't even ask because we're like, oh, they're probably too busy. I don't want to bother them with X, Y, and Z. Um, but some people are delighted to be asked. I know faculty who will never say yes to a research seminar that's the chair of the department's asking, the dean of the school is asking. But if the students invite them, they're like, way, the students know who I am and want to meet with me? That's really awesome. I love talking to graduate students. And some of these people will say yes, depending on who's asking or depending on the way you ask, because that also comes down to a communications thing. How are you asking? Are you asking for one hour of their time? Are you asking for one hour a week for the rest of their lives? Like, you know, depending on what you're asking for, you might be able to get yourself to a yes. And, and a lot of times, depending on the week, we are free. We can find time. Um, and if I'm not free, I might be able to get you in a meeting with somebody who is better suited and might do it just because that person and I are good friends and they want to help me out and they, I do the same when they have somebody who comes through. So, so definitely build your network in any way you can. Build your network through your grad student friends. It's surprising how many people I went to grad school ended up in all sorts of cool places. And I think there are a lot of people out there that are like happy to do a coffee, um, especially maybe post uh, this last year where we were all on Zoom. If people are comfortable, they want to meet up. If they, they, they want to see faces, they want to like sit on the lawn somewhere and talk about stuff. Um, so this is actually a perfect time to start building your network because I think everyone is feeling a little Zoom fatigue and, and wouldn't mind a little one-on-one -on -one in a safe environment. This is such great advice for graduate students. And I'm, I'm hearing this theme of taking risk too, that sometimes it can feel risky to ask for time. So I think the way you articulated that will be really helpful for our listeners. It makes me think of something else you touched on that I just wanted to come back to briefly, which was the importance of either not knowing, you talked about a growth mindset. And actually, before we began recording, you mentioned failure as an inevitable part of producing knowledge and science work specifically. And I just wonder if you would talk even just briefly a bit about the role of failure. We're bound to not succeed at everything we do. And that's okay. Um, I think there was some very famous actor and as he got older, he, he refused to have somebody kind of add makeup to his face that had lines and this and whatever. And he said, this is who I am. This is my face. It shows my journey. It shows where I am. Like we never start out symposia, especially in the um, industry biotech startup realm with this person 
lost $10 million because their first startup failed. And then they went over here and that crumbled. But during each of those steps, those failures taught them significantly more than, than winning all the time. Like you don't really, you know, it, it's, it's really hard. Like, I think this can be true. This is true for probably a lot of us. I think we all remember when we were young and many things came naturally to us. And then at some stage, something was harder. And, you know, they talk about grit as a, as a really important thing for people to learn. If you, if everything worked out all the time for you, it would be a, an extremely boring life, I think. And B, you would never like get better at doing stuff, you know? Um, and I think that as we get older, we're, we're less likely to either take risks or feel failure. And I think that it's okay. Um, I don't want to fail and not learn from it. Uh, I don't want to fail because I didn't put in any effort at all. And it was just a terrible presentation. But if I do what I think is a pretty good job and I try very hard to extremely hard on something and it doesn't work, I think that's okay. I, I had the hardest time with that as a grad student because you, you can't publish that failed result. When I was an editor at Nature, a lot of people were like, oh, peer review is so brutal. I'm like, yes, it can be really hard. But most of the time, the reviewers are trying to help you make your paper better. Every once in a while, there is a real jerk. But in general, they're reading your paper and thinking, hey, man, if, or hey, you, uh, if I did A, B, C, and D, uh, or even half of those things, your paper would be like, awesome, awesome, awesome. Right now, it's one awesome. And if you do all these things, if you can do these things, it gets to triple awesome. And then you've got to decide for your own self, like, okay, well, I'm, I'm happy with being one level of awesome. But I think that um, it's really easy to forget, like, when you ask somebody for feedback, they might give you feedback that isn't all positive and that's okay. I mean, I know I am a, I think at least a pretty good writer, but I know I have a really hard time with like the last sentence or the last two sentences of anything, because I don't want to go like, and then we cured cancer because that's just disingenuous. We didn't cure cancer. And a lot of people just throw that last sentence on everything, but I have a really hard time balancing how to be like, this is really cool, but also in fairness, we know it is what it is. And so for me, I can spend like a half an hour writing the last sentence of something, not an email, but like a proposal. I'm like, I don't know. So I, I like to find people who can give me good feedback on that last sentence, critical feedback, critical, not necessarily meaning negative, but you know, critical feedback to help you make it better is great. It's very, I, I always want someone to be like, yeah, do you really want to put a hyphen there? I don't know. I mean, uh, it doesn't really belong like that. Maybe that's a little detailed feedback, but something where it's like what you're talking about in this paragraph is good, but it'd be a lot stronger if you could say this, if that is correct. Otherwise say this, because that also strengthens it and grad school is hard enough. So like if you apply to a grant, you don't get it. You apply the next year and get it after a while. You're like, man, I'm just, I just need like a week away, but ideally you'll be able to eventually go back with fresh eyes and say, okay, I've got my rest. I know how to make this better. And I'm going to try one last time, or I'm going to do a different tack. This project, I've submitted it three times. No one wants to fund it. I'm going to work on something else for a little while, and maybe I'll come back to that, or maybe I'll, you know, you, you, you ever have those moments like where you, you aren't thinking about something, aren't thinking about something, and suddenly in the shower, you're like, oh my gosh, I have the complete solution to the problem. Our brains need to turn off every once in a while, and then we can come back to it. If you sit down and you're like, I'm going to write all 100 pages of this tonight and submit it tomorrow, it's going to be terrible. But if you write 100 pages and then let it sit for a couple of days, you're going to go back and it's going to be so much better when you actually look at it. And um, and I think kind of this all gets to the theme of like, know your strengths and weaknesses, know yourself, find people who 
in your peer group, in your relationships, anything else, strengthen your strengths and also to some degree help you with your weaknesses. It's not easy to do, but you, you have a lot of people around you right now. And some of these people are going to be like the people you email at two o'clock in the morning when you're 45 and have this crazy idea about like buying the bar around the corner that you used to go to. And now COVID's closed it. So should we buy it? No, we shouldn't buy it is the answer. But anyway, um, they'll stick with you for life. So I think we're running out of time, but this has been such a fun conversation. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for tuning in to episode two of the management and leadership season of Vitamin PhD. From how to navigate a career path that aligns with an individual's passions and aspirations to the promises and pitfalls of interdisciplinary collaboration, we hope you'll take away new insights into innovation and ideas about how we can work successfully across disciplines. For more information about the Biological Design Center and other resources discussed in this episode, please visit the links in the show notes. Next episode, we will pick up the theme of working across disciplines by taking a deep dive into effective management of teams and projects. We'll be speaking with Deborah Wahlberg, an independent consultant with expertise in strategic leadership and international development.